Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello and welcome to a new episode of New Books in Islamic Studies, which operates online through the New Books Network. I'm your host, Sher Ali Tareen. For each new episode, we choose an important new book in the broader field of Islamic studies and we chat with its author. Narges Bajogli's gripping new book, Iran Reframed, presents a riveting ethnography of pro-regime media networks in Iran and sketches an intimate portrait of the actors, projects, and infrastructures invested in preserving and packaging the memory of the Islamic Revolution 40 years later. Written with sparkling clarity, Iran Reframed provides its readers an unprecedented tour of the multiple sites, discourses, and social imaginaries that inform and define efforts of former members of the Revolutionary Guard and the Basij paramilitary organizations to forge narratives of nationalism that might connect with and affect the new generation across ideological divides. The biggest strength of this book is the layered complexity with which it presents its actors and their conflictual aspirations and anxieties surrounding the encounter of media, memory, and revolutionary politics. This stunningly brilliant book, will compel its readers to reconceptualize, rethink, and indeed reframe Iran, Iranian politics, and the interaction of memory, narrative, and the media more generally. Iran Reframed will also be a delight to teach in various undergraduate and graduate seminars on religion and the media, anthropology, Middle East studies, Islamic studies, politics, and much more. Here now is my conversation with Narges Bajogli. Hello, Narges. How are you doing? Hi, good. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Uh, so thank you so much, Narges, for your time and for this really uh, exciting and important uh, new book, uh, which was really a thrill to read. And uh, we have a tradition on the New Books Network, Narges, that our first question is always biographical. So I was wondering if you could share a bit with our listeners about how you became a scholar and then how you got to write uh, this uh, particular book. Sure. So um, after I finished my undergrad, I actually moved to Iran for a few years. Um, I, my family background is Iranian. and um, I, had, I moved there in order to uh, not only sort of spend some time with family, but also I had gotten a fellowship to be at the University of Tehran's Faculty of Law and Political Science. And so I was taking classes there and I was a researcher there. And um, at the time, I, I sort of thought about that period as as n- not necessarily me wanting to go into academia. I actually, my plan was to come back to the States eventually and to go into law school. But the more time that I spent there um, and doing some research, the more that I realized actually I was much more interested in 
uh, dedicating my time to thinking about social issues uh, in depth and really sort of thinking about one or two questions that I had for long periods of time. And I eventually decided not to go to law school, actually, and to think much more about pursuing uh, the social sciences as sort of a career that I wanted to go into. Um, But I didn't really know the difference between the different fields per se, or the different disciplines. I didn't really know what it meant to no longer be a consumer of knowledge as I had been as a student, but to start to actually produce knowledge that I would need to do as a scholar. So when I came back to the States, eventually after a few years, I um, first went into a political science program because I thought I'm interested in questions of politics and therefore it makes sense to go into political science. And it was there that I um, began to realize that, you know, methodologies differ and the the type of literature you draw on sort of differs and all of that based on the different disciplines you're in. And so eventually I um, wasn't really happy with any of the political science classes I was taking. And I um, just happened upon some anthropology classes. And I realized that there was an entire discipline that was really dedicated to uh, field work. And, And for a place like Iran, I think one of the things I always found so frustrating was how so much of the scholarly literature didn't capture a lot of the, the complex realities on the ground. Um, and I thought fieldwork as a methodology would allow us to, to do that. Um, so that's one of the reasons or, or sort of the main reason that I went into uh, academia in general, and then especially anthropology as a, as a field. Um, and then how I got to the topic that led to this book was that um, in around 2007, there was a film that came out in Iran made by, directed by a former uh, paramilitary leader uh, who had created the Ansar Hezbollah paramilitary organization in Iran and who had been in charge of suppressing the student movement, uh, the student uprisings in 1999 at the University of Tehran. He was someone who, among especially activists and students, uh, had been reviled for such a long time. But he came out in 2007 and made this really popular comedy about the Iran-Iraq war, which um, that one was, uh, it it broke all box office records at a time when no one was really... um, uh, going to watch war films anymore. And I had been following his weblogs and he was talking about how the success of his film proved that there was audiences that wanted more entertaining media from the state. And so he wanted to start to train younger folks in the paramilitary organizations to make more entertaining media. And that really sort of piqued my interest. And I decided to uh, go to those workshops and see how men in the paramilitary military organizations in Iran were being trained to make new forms of entertainment. Um, And that sort of led to this book. Terrific. And that's actually a great transition to the first uh, question. Uh, Nargis, I was wondering to begin, if uh, you could set the stage a bit for our listeners uh, about sort of the key site of your ethnography, the key actors um, about these regime media producers uh, who are the focus of this book, uh, and then sort of the key question or the kind of conceptual intervention that you try to make by complicating our understanding of uh, these uh, sort of people uh, in power. But then I think you do a fantastic job in the book of showing some of these sort of uh, tragedies and tensions uh, in wrapping the way they imagine uh, the moment of the 1979 revolution and so on. So anyway, so I was wondering if we can begin by talking, having you talk a bit about sort of the, the site, the actors, and then the main question that you uh, ask and address uh, in this book. Sure. So 
Um, my main question in the book was, um, how does a revolution that's become the status quo, how does it keep the commitment to the revolution alive from one generation to the next? So it's a question that I, that is, uh, you know, is a question that's of importance to any revolutionary state, not just the Iranian one. Uh, so how do you take a, 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 a moment that is supposed to be about insurrection against the status quo? But keep that alive in a way that doesn't mobilize the population to to begin to protest against the, the new revolutionary state. Um, and especially from one generation to the next when they no longer remember the sort of foundations of the revolution and why it took place in the first in the first place. So that was sort of the overarching question. And then the 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 field work and, and sort of the, the stage, as you mentioned, of, of this book is I went into I was really interested in following around the filmmakers. So first of all, my my research was looking at uh, regime-produced media, and particularly because of what I just stated before, I was really interested in how uh, paramilitary and military groups, so, so the Revolutionary Guard and the Basij and Ansar Hezbollah organizations under them, how they produce media. Because they have they spend a lot of money on media production every single year actually there's they're some of the biggest funders of media production in the country and then above that too they um you know the the islamic republic since the very beginning days of the of its formation in 1979 really uh pinpointed culture as an arena in which they needed to to fight and to have you know it was sort of a, a fight for ideas about how to create this new revolutionary society um and so uh, when I started the research, I wanted to work with these military media producers, but I didn't want to just interview them because like state elites the world over, they would sort of give the formulaic responses that any state elite would give. Instead, I wanted to see these productions in progress um, and in their studios and on production sets and in budget meetings and things like that. And so uh, the the... What I do in the book and what I did during the research is I went into multiple different studios of regime media producers, um, and I spent long periods of time with them, and I saw how they were developing their films over time. Uh, the, and then as I was doing this research, I realized that one of the biggest one of the biggest divides that exists within the Islamic Republic um, is a generational divide. And, and oftentimes when Iran is sort of written about it's written about as like the regime versus the people or like the regime versus the young population, the young generation. And there, there's definitely parts of that. But what I found within regime circles itself was an interge- intergenerational divide between those who had fought for and been alive during the revolution and the Iran-Iraq war, which came on the heels of the revolution, and those who were sort of in their 20s and early 30s, uh, who didn't remember the revolution or the war at all. And it was really a a fight about what the future of the Islamic Republic would look like and what the legacy of the revolution would be going forward. And so it was debate. what I found the most fascinating in in all of this fieldwork, and what I tried to highlight in the book, were these uh, internal debates among the different generations of the Revolutionary Guard and paramilitary organizations. Um, and and really sort of my focus on media was uh, because, A, I think it's really important to think about um, how are those in 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 states, right? And first of all, every state does media, uh, does pr- propaganda. Some states are just better at hiding or more savvy at, you know, 
their citizens not thinking that they are producing propaganda that others are. So within within the Islamic Republic, it was I wanted to really be looking at how um, how are they messaging what the state is to to their populations, um, and um, and I think thinking about media producers. Uh, especially from a state's perspective, is really important for that because in those discussions, you then get you are then able to see things like how do they even envision their citizenry? How do they think about the future of the state? Um, and so, those are the stories that I was really sort of drawn to in the fieldwork. Terrific. So, um, let's talk a bit about the central theme of the book, which is a generational divide, which also is the focus of the first uh, chapter. And in the first chapter, you also uh, give a very uh, useful history and sort of the shifts that have taken place uh, in an organization such as uh, the Sazmane Basije Mustazafin. And I think there was a very poignant moment. I, I think it was in this chapter, where, or perhaps the introduction, where you uh, show ways in which after the 2009 uh, sort of the Green Revolution, where these uh, sort of uh, people who were very much part of the protagonists uh, or the pioneers of uh, uh, the Revolutionary Guard, etc., but now reflecting on their past in very poignant ways and were now critics of the government itself. And that really captured this generational divide that uh, you were talking about. So I was wondering if you could uh, speak a bit about this generational divide and sort of the shifts that have taken place uh, in the organization of the Basij and the, how it then is uh, uh, reflected in these media productions and uh, ways in which uh, the revolutionary moment is remembered and uh, repackaged, uh, as you show in uh, chapter one. Sure. So, you know, when I started my research, my fieldwork right after or right when the Green Movement started in Iran. So that summer that the Green Movement started is when I was also starting to make my first forays, forays into this research. And I thought, you know, that's it. My research is done. I can't even get this off the ground because of, of this movement. Eventually, though, I, I was able to 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 be able to to do the field work. But one of the things I thought I would see a lot of was um, the ways in which these uh, regime media producers were trying to target young people who had been involved in the movement and the green movement and try to bring them back to the regime side. And although there was a lot of that, actually what I saw the most of was the generational divide within the organizations themselves. And so th- that comes out in in the introductory chapter in the sense that Many of the people in the first generation of the Revolutionary Guard, meaning the folks who had fought for the revolution and the Iran-Iraq war, um, throughout the years, they, especially those who hold some leadership positions within the organization, throughout the years, they really shifted towards more on the reformist end of things. So they they want the Islamic Republic to continue, but they want it to reform. Um, and then there are some within that the, that first generation that, you know, don't believe in reforms, but for the, the majority seem to. Um, and at least in my research, that's what I saw over and over again. Now, um, because of that, and because many within the Revolutionary Guard were, were voting for reformist candidates throughout the past 20 odd years, um, the supreme leader in Iran, Ayatollah Khamenei, really saw that as a threat to his power. Um, because they, you know, eventually sort of the reform movement was a movement to try to, re, you know, uh, sort of push the Islamic Republic 
in different ways outside of the Vedayat Safari that he, the position that he holds. Um, and so because of that, from the, from the mid-1990s onwards, Khamenei's office actually began to um, think about how it would create a cadre of people within the Islamic Republic that would be loyal to him. And so the idea was that they would, um, you know, train younger generations of the Basij to really sort of become loyal members and followers of Khamenei. Uh, so the curriculum of the Basij from the late 1990s onwards began to shift. And, um, and that's the intergenerational divide that I saw the most of. So it was the, the first generation that really sort of wanted things to, sh- to shift and move and reform. And then the, what I call the third generation, the, those who are, you know, in their twenties and thirties who really, um, had been raised in this atmosphere of uh, of um, loyalty to the supreme leader, uh, and that is sort of one of the the biggest fights about thinking about the future of the Islamic Republic is what shape is it going to take and whose legacy is it going to be loyal to? Will it be loyal to Khamenei's legacy or as the reformists claim, they're trying to be loyal to Khomeini's legacy? And so that is, you know, one of one of those main points of contention. And then I think we also see that in a lot of the protests that have been happening today too. But Now, the next uh, chapter is called uh, Cracks in the Official Story. And I think in this chapter, it really uh, show in very interesting ways, uh, sort of an underlying theme of the book, which is that at the same time as many of these actors are very invested in the uh, sort of uh, narrative uh, appeal of the revolutionary moment, they can also be quite critical of the regime, uh, and but in, a, in their own subtle ways. Uh, so I was wondering if you could speak a bit about this distinction that you make in the chapter about between the real and the uh, official sort of uh, narrative and conditions, um, how that gets uh, uh, reflected in their discussions with you and also in their in their work. And if, as part of this answer, you could also reflect a bit on the mysterious package that you uh, discuss and analyze uh, in this chapter. So, uh, yeah, in, in in that chapter, I'm really looking at the ways in which. Um, so, first of all, what does it mean that the when when the regime began to develop its um, you know, narrative about the found the foundation story of the Islamic Republic is actually not the revolution. The foundation story of the Islamic Republic is the Iran-Iraq War because the revolution was way too complicated in the sense that it had too many groups uh, that did not actually align it themselves with the Islamic Republic when it came into formation afterwards. So it's really difficult for the Islamic Republic to pinpoint the, re- the revolution as a foundation story. So instead, it focuses on the Iran-Iraq War. Now, in the creation of the narrative of the Iran-Iraq War, just like states in you know every country around the world, when war happens, they sort of monopolize the narrative of the war, or, or at least they try to. Um, in the Islamic Republic, they um, uh, monopolize the narrative of the war by in the 1980s and 1990s, making it a war of uh, imbued with this sort of Shia spirituality. Um, but as they noticed, um, and and I ta- I write about this a lot in the book, they would have all these conversations about, well, that narrative has, has obviously failed because no one goes to our museums anymore. No one watches our films anymore. No one goes into our bookstores and buys our books anymore. So we need to tell better stories and we need to reformulate our stories. Um, and in that process, what I also began to recognize or see, though, is that uh, one of the ways in which um, the story 
perpetuates itself is that via national television, state TV, um, every year when they commemorate the war, they they go, national television crews go to these veterans' homes and they interview the veterans. And the veterans, through 40 years of these sorts of interviews, are very practiced in how to respond to these sorts of questions. Um, and so that's what I call the, the Rasmi or the official narrative of the Iran-Iraq war. But when you get to know the veterans uh, very closely, and, and it takes some years, right, because they, they're so well-practiced in, in, in giving those stories that you really have to gain their trust. And once you do, then they tell you their stories, or, or as they would sort of recall it, the Vare'i stories, right? Um, and it's in those stories where they begin to talk about how much they actually, so much PTSD from the war that they suffer from, all of the experiences that they had at the war front. Um, and, um, and, and also, you know, also talking about some of the camaraderie, of course. Um, now, in, in that chapter, I also talk about this. At one point, I was leaving Iran for a short trip, and um, some of the main veterans who are cultural producers in Iran had uh, texted me and said, you know, before you leave, come to our office, we want to give you something. And so I went to their office and they gave me a package that was bubble wrapped three times and was very sort of securely put together. And they told me, you know, don't, don't uh, open this package until you get to the U.S. Um, and be careful with it in the airport. And uh, they said, there's a film in here, but we don't want you to see it until you get to the U.S. And I said, okay, fine. And so when I finally got back to New York and I opened up, I opened it up and I put it in my computer, it was a film uh, done by a veteran in uh, one of the uh, mental health and two of the mental health institutions in Iran where veterans are, are treated. And it's this really sort of harrowing film without any real narrative arc. Uh, it's sort of like a documentary that uh, puts together interviews of various family members and uh, patients who are in these mental hospitals. And it really sort of talks about the really bad treatment that they're getting and more than anything about how incredibly um, taxing the war was on their mental health. Um, when I finally got back to Iran, I called up the veterans who gave me this package and I said, look, I saw the film. I want to talk to you guys about it. And so they invited me over and they they were the ones who told me, look, the, the veteran who made this, um, he wanted it to be broadcast on national television, but national television doesn't want any critical stories of the war to come out. And so they decided that they would um, either distribute it among veterans via Bluetooth technology on their phones or just burn it on VCDs like they had done for me and given it to me. And that they get together in groups and watch films like this and and also uh, with their family members and show them. And it really... Um, they sort of begin to break down the ways in which they feel like their struggles during the war have been utilized by the political elite for, um, you know, for opportunities and those opportunities haven't trickled down to them. Um, so it's really like the, the veterans and the war itself is such an important part of the Islamic Republic that often gets overlooked in discussions of Iran. Um, but that one of the reasons I, I dedicated a chapter this, to this is because I think it's really important to sort of understand the cleavages. Now, before I get to the next uh, chapter, Nargis, uh, I was wondering if you could 
briefly uh, speak a bit about the actors themselves uh, on whom the ethnography focuses, the two, three actors. If you could briefly uh, talk a bit about, of course, you use pseudonyms about their background, their sort of uh, age group, class background, etc. And then we'll move to the next chapter. I think this will be useful for the listeners too, because you do a very good job of showing the kind of uh, complexities of these characters. Uh, So if you could introduce them a bit to our listener. Sure. So the, um, you know, I did this research over a 10 year period and, and um, interviewed and talked to and spent time with over 200 members of the Revolutionary Guard and Vestige who are uh, filmmakers and media producers. But I also, my goal for this book was to write this ethnography in a way that um, was, is readable and that can get people who have, I mean, most people, I think who have these um, particular views of what Iran is like, um, and get them to try to understand it from those who are within the regime. So, so paint a more 3D picture of them. So in thinking about how to write the book, I, I went back and forth in many ways. And eventually I sort of settled on, uh, there were three main interlocutors that I had um, among all the other folks that I spent time with, who I thought their stories best encapsulated these different kinds of divides that I'm trying to bring out in the book that I saw on the research. And so I I trace their stories and use them sort of as, as folks to help the reader understand all of these different complexities that I'm trying to point to. So the three people that I trace out throughout the book, the first person who I use the pseudonym of Mr. Hosseini, um, he's a veteran of the Iran-Iraq war. He fought all eight years of the war. um, And then he since has become, he eventually ended up getting his PhD and is a screenwriter and filmmaker. Um, and he, his his uh, wife and children had participated in the green movement. He really tries to uh, bridge this divide between those who are a part of the system and those who are not a part of the system. And he really thinks that in order to keep the system alive, we, that they have to appeal to the senses of those who don't agree with them. Um, and then the other person who is a slightly younger than Mr. Hosseini, uh, his, I name him Mr. Ahmadi in the book, he uh, volunteered to go to the war front as a, as a 15 or 16 year old, he forged his parents' signature. But after only a few weeks of getting there, um, he had the bad fortune of being um, somewhere where a bomb was dropped very close to him and it ended up blowing off both of his legs. And so very quickly after going to the war, he had to be sent back home and um, eventually was sort of relegated to a wheelchair ever since then. And he, uh, Losing both of his legs at the age of 16 really affected him, has affected him very, very much so. And eventually he became a filmmaker, um, but he's also very keen on being a voice um, and an advocate for other wounded veterans from the Iran-Iraq war. Um, and he himself had also participated in the green movement demonstrations along with his wife and children, and eventually got beaten up by other Basijis in that green movement, uh, when, when they began to crack down. And so he has this really interesting position in which he wants reforms for the system. He really sort of is against the younger generation of the Basijis because they targeted him in the way that they did. And eventually they ended up pushing him out of the cultural center that he worked in. He he got fired. Um, And then the third character in the book or the person in the book is um, someone I call Mortiza. 
who uh, was very young. He's among the third generation. At the time um, that I was doing this research, he was uh, in, I think, around 21 years old when I started the research. He was a leader in in his universities. He was at the Art University in Iran, in Tehran. And he's the leader of the Basij paramilitary organization at his university. And the Basij organizations on student campuses are some of the most uh, hardline elements um, in society. And so uh, he was very much against people like Mr. Ahmadi and Mr. Husseini, the other two that I outlined, because he thought that they were letting the revolution sort of go astray. And so he thought that he and his generation needed to bring the revolution back to its essential elements. And in that regard, he, he wasn't afraid of he would constantly say to me, I'm not afraid of confrontation with those who disagree with us. And so th- this is sort of the, the broader canvas that I try to draw the story of what I saw happening and, and using these three uh, people to, to help draw that narrative out. Now, the next uh, chapter focuses on this uh, theme of the insider and the outsider, what you call khudi and ghairi khudi. And you begin this chapter through a very interesting event that you describe uh, in interesting detail where sort of a new film is being screened and discussed and it, uh, what uh, ensues really shows some of the cultural divisions um, in wrapping uh, not only Iranian society, but also the kind of world of these um, uh, filmmakers, etc., and critics that, that you uh, intimately describe. So I was wondering if you could begin uh, with a description of this event uh, and uh, how you then tease out some of these cultural dimensions and divisions that become a part of this larger theme of the insider-outsider uh, divide. Sure. So um, one day, Mr. Hosseini um, texted me one evening and said, I need you to come. I'm, I'm putting together a, a really important meeting. So I go down to the the place he had asked me to come to, which was this pro-regime cultural center. And I got there earlier than everyone else. And he said, I'm putting together an event unlike anything that's ever happened before. And I wanted you to see this. And basically what he was doing was that one um, independent filmmaker who had been trained under Iranian filmmaking luminaries like Abbas Kirostami and Asghar Farhadi, um, he, this, this young filmmaker had made a film that um, the Iranian authorities wanted to censor. And so uh, Mr. Hosseini decided that he wanted to get together all of the more hardline elements of regime um, critics and also, importantly, the newspaper writers, the, the cultural writers of, of these uh, hardline newspapers, to come and watch this film and then uh, try to persuade them not to write badly about the film because Mr. Hosseini's idea throughout my entire research was we're our own worst enemy, meaning that he thought that the way that the regime reacts to dissent actually made the dissent bigger and more powerful because they were constantly acting acting as um, as censors. So he had invited a group of folks to come and watch this film. And what ended up, pursu- you know, we watched the film and then the director came and then there was this entire debate, very heated debate that ends up ensuing between these hardline cultural critics and, um, and the film director. And eventually it actually uh, turns into sort of like a censorship meeting where they're asking him to censor different parts of his film so that they can then not write badly about it. Um, and eventually I, I use this uh, example to sort of think about and 
this idea of the revolutionary divide that's been written a lot about actually in other revolutionary contexts like the Soviet Union and Cuba and China, but this friend-enemy divide. And, and it's, it hasn't really been written about on Iran. And in the Iranian context, it takes on this us versus them. It, that's sort of how it's translated, or khudi, qayda khudi. And so I, 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 this, this episode that took place was sort of this really, it, it encapsulated this khudi, qayda khudi divide in Iran and the ways in which um, the revolutionary collective is defined as, and, and who was who defined to be a part of the revolutionary collective and who was deemed not uh, as a part of the revolutionary collective and what are the fault lines there. And what I think was really fascinating about this entire episode and I tried to bring out in the chapter is that in the same way that the regime has an us versus them divide, the other sides, the, the intellectual and secular sides of Iranian society also have an us versus them divide. And they, they're all constantly speaking past one another and not seeing each other. And in, in the debates that ensue in this chapter, you really get a sense at how they are constantly just not seeing each other in society and talking past each other and not valuing one another. And that, that I think sort of points to bigger issues in Iranian political life, sort of even above and beyond the Islamic Republic. Um, but, but those were, those were some of the, the things I was trying to pull out as well as the ways in which the state sort of thinks about artists and intellectuals um, uh, vis-a-vis how, whether they do belong or not belong within the Islamic Republic. If we could move to the chapter in which you talk about um, the production of nationalism, and I think that was an, another moment where the sole question of the generational divide really came up in very interesting ways, where uh, your actors are reflecting on this whole question of how to attract this new generation, which has its own kinds of idioms and its own sort of uh, cultural uh, sort of uh, uh, capital and so on. And... Uh, and through that, they're trying to produce a certain kind of nationalism through the media, but this concerted effort to to meet a new kind of audience. So I was wondering if you could speak a bit about some of the strategies that they try to employ uh, in what you call the production of nationalism, a certain kind of a notion of populist nationalism, but uh, with an eye to uh, attracting a new kind of an audience and generation and how that again brings into focus this underlying theme of generational divide, which uh, runs throughout uh, the book. Yeah, so, um, you know, in as I said before, I was doing this research after 2009. And so 2009 was really this moment because of the Green Movement uprisings in which the Islamic Republic felt that it faced a big crisis of legitimacy. And so in the, in the media world of the Islamic Republic, the conversations that they were having over and over again is, you know, there, there has been this uprising because we failed to tell the story of the revolution in such a way that we could have followers for the revolution. So how can we tell better stories? What are the better stories we can tell? Or how can we couch our narrative of why we even had the revolution in a way that this younger generation is going to understand? Now, I think it's important for the listeners to know that this is important because, um, Iran's population is over 70% under the age of 40, meaning they don't remember, the majority of the population doesn't remember the revolution or the war. Um, and in these conversations, they would constantly say things like, you know, what we produced in the 1980s and 90s was propaganda that was important for its time, but we keep using that those same formula for what we're producing today, and it's falling on deaf ears and no one's watching. So they, in, in a lot of these meetings, they would say things like, we need to meet the young people where they are. And what was happening in Iran at the moment at that time 
and it sort of had been a process that was building up over over some time, was that in reaction to this state-led effort to define Iranian identity in this particular Shia revolutionary way from the 1979 revolution onwards, a popular response from the ground up started to become an, a, a, a big embrace of Persian nationalism above and beyond a certain form of like state uh, Shiism. And so in the population, there were, um, you know, you could see all over Iran, uh, people were buying the Farvahar, the Zoroastrian symbol. It's just the Zoroastrian symbol that people were buying to wear as pendants, kind of like people wear the Christian clothes. And this is sold all over the country. People were wearing it. There were all these newspaper articles lamenting the fact that Iranians were naming, young Iranians were naming their kids these old Persian names instead of, and no longer these Muslim names. Um, And so all of these different indicators in society were telling them that, you know, people have moved much more towards this Persian identity and away from a certain Shia uh, Shia identity that the state was defining for them, um, and so they begin to think about how to do, how to make their products about nationalism, and really importantly in all of this is how to redefine the Islamic Republic as something that is there. Um, as an entity that is there to defend the Iranian nation and not something that is there to defend just Islam. Uh, So how do they begin to do this? First, they start to create new films um, and music videos, um, but then also they spend millions of dollars in creating a new museum in Tehran uh, about the war. But really interestingly, they've been setting up museums all over the country uh, commemorating the war for years now. And those museums have all been called martyrs museums because the narrative of the war up until that point was told as a narrative of martyrdom, sort of in line with the killing of Imam Hussein, the third Shia Imam. Um, But as they were saying, no one was going to those museums. So then they built this new uh, museum that opened its doors in 2012 um, that retold the story of the war in nationalist terms. And so in one of the and one of the wings of the, one of the major wings of the museum that you enter, there's a huge uh, map of the Persian Empire from 3,000 years ago. And as you go down the hallway, that map gets smaller and smaller. And at the end, the only uh, government, the only entity that hasn't altered Iran's national borders uh, is the Islamic Republic. And so th- this is the narrative that they're telling you that you know we are just as Iranian as any of the. Um, the previous monarchies and the previous uh, systems in, that, that have ruled in this area. Um, but we are even more Iranian in the sense that we have, uh, in the Iran-Iraq war, we, we, we helped maintain the borders of the country. We've maintained the dignity of this ancient civilization. Um, and this, I think, perfectly encapsulates what they're trying to do. And so because after the 2009 movement, they were seen as being this very oppressive force, what they were trying to do was to re re narrative to create a new narrative of themselves as, as a force that would defend Iran as the nation. And of course, this is all really important in the political cl- climate that it rose out of, because it's also when there are, began to be more and more proxy wars between Iran and Saudi Arabia, um, and uh, sort of wider tensions in the region, eventually ISIS and all of that. And so this all plays into, um, into that narrative. 
So uh, as a way to ask the final question, uh, Nargis, I want to actually read a couple of sentences of the very last paragraph of uh, the book, which I thought were really powerful and very nicely encapsulated the larger sort of objective that you sought to achieve and I thought very successfully achieved in the book. And I'll ask you to connect this uh, thought to the present moment um, and what implications do you see in terms of the book's uh, intervention in terms of the present that we occupy uh, so here is the last uh, a couple of lines from the last para. You write, uh, by taking the lived experiences of those who work on behalf of the regime in Iran seriously and understanding why they continue to fight to uphold a system they have qualms about from time to time, we can see these men as complex actors who work beyond the binary that often dominates political talk in Iran, reformist versus hardliner, anti-regime versus pro-regime. This exercise requires us to see that regime media producers have fierce debates with one another about the future of the country, to understand that they are constantly challenged and changed by their children, to recognize that they struggle among themselves to define what the future of the Islamic Republic will look like. So I thought this really nicely captured the kind of uh, complexity uh, uh, and sort of density of nuance that you present in this book in relation to these actors. I was wondering if you could speak a bit about sort of the relevance, the importance of this argument and this intervention uh, to the present moment, which is uh, still in flux in terms of the political dynamics uh, in Iran. Yeah, um, you know, since two weeks ago when the when the protest over the fuel prices in Iran erupted and then there was a really um, strong and violent crack, crackdown from the state, um, I've been thinking a lot about uh, the research from the book and how that relates to what's been going on now. And I think, you know, things are still in flux. We're still finding out a bunch of information. Um, but w- one of the things I will say in, in this present moment is a couple a couple things. One is that um, there, just like I lay out in the book, there is uh, a very heavy internal divide within the within the regime in general, but also within the Re- Revolutionary Guard. Um, and I, and I think we are seeing some of that right now too, in the sense of those who believe that uh, protests need to be cracked down on in this wider atmosphere of maximum pressure that the U.S. has imposed on Iran, um, and those who think that, um, that no, let's continue sort of um, down a different path uh, in dealing with these. Um, and, and in that, what I will also say in that regard is that um, following what's going on in Iran today, you, you get a sense of, I mean, this is, this is part of my goal with this book was to show you know, so much of what's written about the Islamic Republic and especially its armed forces, they, people write about it in this, it's this sort of, you know, very dictatorial system in which the Supreme leader says something and then it's followed down the line. Um, And what I, what I saw and then what I, what I tried to write was how it's actually far more complex than that. And that there are a lot of very vibrant conversations within these, uh, within those who, see themselves as supporters of the regime to the point where even sometimes they come away thinking, are we doing the right thing and even supporting this regime or not? Or do we have to think of an alternative to this? And I know that those conversations are happening now because of what we're seeing sort of pour out since the protests have finished. But I think another really important point of what's going on now that relates to the book is that in the book, I I lay out how um, in the after the green movement, one of the things in which they began to hone in on once the Syrian civil war started and turned into this really bloody conflict was, um, 
using that conflict and what was also happening in Iraq as a, hey, look, people, you may not like us, but at least we are a stable country and we haven't turned into Syria or Iraq. Um, that sort of narrative is being used again today, um, although they've cracked down in such a way that it'll be interesting to see whether people will buy that narrative or, or it's going to become a stale narrative now. But I think um, in understanding what's happening, we have to sort of understand these broader issues and also know that Iran and those who are in the armed and paramilitary forces today see the see and understand international politics and see international politics through these lens, through a lens of war for two reasons. One is that the the first generation that's now at the helm of power got their understanding of international politics on the battlefields of the Iran-Iraq war, which was basically a proxy war. Um, and then two, this younger generation got uh, um battle ready, if, if you will, or, or sort of experienced battle in Syria and Iraq fighting against ISIS. Um, and so you have all of those chickens are now coming home to roost. And that's what's causing um, this sort of really uh, complex reality that we see on the ground today. So as we come to the end of our uh, time, uh, Nargis, I was wondering if you could share with a bit uh, with our listeners about what's the next uh, project? Sure. So I'm I'm working on two projects kind of simultaneously. One is um, during and before the research I did for this book, Iran Reframed, I had been doing research with survivors of chemical warfare uh, for many years. And so I have all of those interviews and that work, and I'm, I'm slowly working on putting that together as, um, as a book on chemical warfare use in the Middle East um, in the past 40 years. Um, And then the other book uh, that I'm focusing on, so as I was writing Iran Reframed, which was basically looking at how, you know, um, the the intersections of power and media when it comes to understanding Iran, I, you know, knew, I I noticed more and more that um, doing this research in Iran was important, but it's only half the story, that the other half of understanding how Iran has been framed since the 1979 revolution onwards is actually understanding U.S. media narratives. And so... um, I'm now sort of doing what I did in Iran, but here in the sense that I'm, I'm doing an ethnography, more of a historical ethnography of the ways in which the narratives about Iran um, were produced in the U.S. starting from the hostage crisis onwards. Um, so that's the next book. And it's looking at how we've basically become hostage to this one narrative of Iran since 1979 that hasn't shifted very much and trying to understand where that came from and why it continues to persist. Iran reframed Anxieties of Power in the Islamic Republic by Professor Nargis Bajogli, published by Stanford University Press in 2019. Uh, thank you, Nargis, for this fascinating and really exciting new book and for all your time and uh, really erudite comments uh, about this book today. I'm sure our listeners will have really benefited from uh, your insights and will, uh, uh, I think, really benefit, of course, from reading uh, this uh, uh, extremely lyrical and uh, lucid uh, and exciting book as well. So thank you so much. Thank you so much. So this was my conversation with Professor Narges Bajogli about her brilliant new book, Iran Reframed. I hope you enjoyed this episode of New Books and Islamic Studies, which operates online through the New Books Network. And I hope that you will also join us next time Uh, perhaps in the new year 2020 for another fresh episode of your favorite podcast new books in islamic studies until then 
This is your host Sher Ali Tareen signing off. Take care, stay well and keep listening to new books in Islamic studies.